Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. The underground economy is one of the largest and most influential markets in the world. The sale of everything outside of the law is by its very nature hard to track, but reputable sources peg it at well into the trillions of dollars per year. That's bigger than the market for fast food, movies, fashion, and smartphones combined many times over. This is something that can genuinely impact entire nations. Not only do black market activities come with a significant human cost, but the economic forces involved can easily make the difference between a successful economy and a struggling economy. We have seen the positive and negative impacts that oil and gas discoveries can have on national economies, but black market revenues in 2019 rivaled these revenues worldwide, so it's not unreasonable to assume that the impacts would be just as great. To truly explore these industries though, we as always have to understand what makes the black market function. So, what is the black market? And spoiler alert, it's a lot more than just selling drugs. Why is it so large and influential? What are the best ways to practically combat these illicit trades? And if you were so inclined, how would one carve out a little bit of black market profit all of their own. This episode of Economics Explained was made possible by our fans on Patreon, because let's be honest, this one is definitely getting demonetized. This has been one of the most requested videos amongst our patron team. If you would like to have your say about what topic we explore next, even if it is a video like this one, please consider supporting the channel on patreon.com slash economicsexplained. When someone thinks of the black market, their mind will immediately race to mafia bosses running protection rackets, or Pablo Escobar with his mountains of ill-gotten gains. Now these are certainly parts of the black market, but they do not define it. In reality, the black market is the result of regulatory rigidities. Controlled substances, guns, ill-gotten kidneys, and fake passports are all illegal to own, illegal to buy, and illegal to sell. This is a very direct way that a government can control a consumer market. Any type of transaction involving these items is not sanctioned, and the punishments are pretty severe for trying to accommodate these sales. This means three things. One, that these transactions cannot be legally recognised. You can't pay taxes on them, and you will most likely need to launder any money you make from them. Two, the parties involved will have to accept a cost premium due to the risks involved in not having enforceable contracts, meaning that if someone does you a dirty in one of these deals, it's up to you to seek compensation, because well, obviously you can't go and do it through a court. This can be risky and expensive. And three, the parties involved will have to accept a cost premium due to the inherent risk reward trade-off of dealing with items that could get you 25 years to life. So the black market for outright illegal goods is filled with costly items sold by people with the means to defend themselves and are not necessarily afraid of prison, right? Well yes, 
But the black market is not entirely made up of these types of very obviously illegal items. One of the largest underground markets in the world is for counterfeit goods. In 2016, this market rivaled the size of the drug trade. Now, counterfeit goods are still illegal, but for different reasons. Nobody's going to OD on fake Yeezys, and you can't haze someone with a fake Rolex, so they are inherently less dangerous to have in circulation. But they defy intellectual property rights. When a company designs a shoe or a watch or even makes a video to put onto the internet, they have the rights to exclusively share that intellectual property. Because of this exclusivity, they are often able to charge a premium for their funny shoes, plain-looking watches, or Australian-sounding economics commentary. This premium allows designers, innovators, and content creators to profit off the time and effort they spent developing the product that they are bringing to market. This premium also means that it's very easy for a copycat to come in and replicate the product without having to invest into the development and undercut the innovator. Oftentimes, counterfeit goods are of extremely inferior quality, but other times they are indistinguishable. Authorities from around the world are very keen to crack down on this market because undercutting genuine innovation means that one, there is no profit incentive to invest into research and development, and two, the businesses that are innovating will be priced out so they won't be able to continue innovating. This is often seen as a pretty benign market given that the only victims are high-priced fashion houses, media studios, and poor, poor YouTubers. <coughs> but in all seriousness though, design and cutting-edge research can be a major component of entire national economies, and by not fully supporting the profit motive involved in innovation, we may not benefit from the next breakthrough that will change our lives for the better. Now, the big takeaway from all of these examples is that it all goes to show that the black market is there to fill the gaps caused by governments or regulatory bodies saying, no, you can't buy this or you can buy this, but it has to be from this company. Although the shadow economy leaks in and takes advantages of all market influences, even when they are not there to control the product, they are there to control the price. Passionate advocates for legalizing certain markets will always argue that something should be legalized and taxed. This will more often than not alleviate a lot of the social issues that come along with these markets, but it doesn't mean that it will get rid of them entirely. Tobacco is one of the most notable examples of this. Smoking is very bad for you, Despite this, it remains legal in every country around the world apart from Bhutan. But because of its negative side effects, governments will often levy a tax on tobacco products to try and artificially make them less desirable purchases. In Australia, for example, a packet of cigarettes that costs about a dollar to produce and import can easily sell over the counter for $40 once government taxes are considered. This kind of static price increase means that there is a huge opportunity for people to sell cigarettes that are imported directly into the black market. The buyers are getting exactly the same product, probably produced in the same factory at a significantly reduced price. The sellers get to pocket the difference between the price of international markets and the price in the domestic market, or while dealing in a product that is significantly less frowned upon than hard drugs or weapons or kidneys. This price intervention also goes the other way. When governments say something, 
can't cost more than a certain amount. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Take oil, for example. When you fill up, the price you pay is mostly determined by the price of crude oil, government taxes on oil, and the markup of the oil retailer. Let's say for simplicity, this is around $1 per litre, or $3.80 per gallon for our American friends. At this price, the demand for oil perfectly matches the supply of oil, and the market is said to be in equilibrium. But if a government were to turn around and say that expensive oil is hurting our auto industry and trucking companies can't turn a profit with these high oil prices, they might introduce what is called a price ceiling. A price ceiling means that the price of whatever product it is, in this case oil, can't go above, let's say, 50 cents per litre, half the price that it was originally trading at. If we go back to our demand and supply graph, that would look like this. Nobody can buy or sell oil for more than 50 cents per litre. The problem this causes is that almost everybody will want to fill up their cars at 50 cents per litre. They will load up on jerry cans and go on road trips and just in all, consume more petrol. But retailers would not want to sell at this price. At 50 cents per litre, they might not even be breaking even on production unless they are drilling from nothing but the easiest oil wells. So definitely no fracking and definitely no shale oil. What this means is that there will be lots and lots of people that go without petrol shown by this quantity shortfall here. So what are people to do? They still need petrol to get to work or pick up the kids, so it's not always a luxury item that they can just go without. They would need to buy it from people with less of an attachment to those pesky regulations. Those people filling up their jerry cans might be a little bit enterprising and agree to sell this fuel back to the general public, at a significant markup of course. We can chart this out on our graph. No matter what, Oil producers are only going to make this much oil available at 50 cents per litre, but this much is demanded. This will form a black market price at this level up here, say at $2. A not so fun fact is that this area here represents a dead weight loss. That's the cost created to a society born out of market inefficiencies. In an attempt to make oil prices more affordable, this intervention has made it more expensive for regular consumers. Oil is an easy example of this, but we see these types of price ceilings creating black markets all the time. Resale supreme bricks, concert ticket scalpers, toilet paper resellers all take advantage of lower mandated prices than what the true market price is. So now, the different ways the black market form are understood. How is it that we study them and why are they so important? Black markets give the impression of just being made up of hardened criminals peddling very illegal goods. But as we have seen, these markets exist wherever there is inefficient market stipulations. The logical extent of this is something like a child's lemonade stand. Chances are, 
This stand is an unlicensed restaurant utilising child labour in a residential zone, so it's part of the underground economy by definition. The black market often includes things like this that people think are really benign, but all of this can add up to a significant difference in the economy. Things like unregistered work for cash in hand or goods sold on the side of the road are more often than not unreported to taxation agencies, which can have significant impacts on government revenue. These industries can also have significant impacts on labour statistics and unemployment rates. If governments are trying to conduct robust fiscal and monetary policy, they're going to need to know things like the true unemployment rate. In reality, good economists will actually account for the underground economy in their macroeconomic models. Now, actually quantifying the size of this black market is the hard part. If you were to interview your local kidney dealer or lemon beverage proprietor, they are going to be less than forthcoming with their financial figures, either because they don't know or because that information would expose criminal activities. To get around this uncooperative accounting, economists use a range of measures from forensic finance to aerial photography and even monitoring the types of consumer goods purchased in an area. If a supposedly poor neighbourhood is loading up on new cars, TVs and jet skis, it's pretty safe to assume that there is some form of black market operation going on. One of the most inspired ways economists measure the size of the shadow economy is detailed in this article written by Friedrich Schneider and Dominic Ernst from the Journal of Economic Literature. They look at energy output and compare it to GDP figures. In reality, there is an incredibly strong correlation between GDP and energy output. We have actually explored this phenomenon before when we looked at the economy of the Star Wars galaxy and where it sat on the Kardashev scale. Back on Earth, If a country or area is using a disproportionate amount of electricity compared with its genuine economic output, it's an indication that there is some funny business going on. Now the reason this is all so important to economists is despite making good models and, you know, the law and stuff, it's that these industries can have major economic impacts. Illegal labour is one of the most severe examples of this. Just like our friendly neighbourhood drug dealer from earlier, If people are working illegally, they don't have any, well, legal recourse if something goes wrong. Having a market filled with workers that are happy to work below minimum wage in adverse conditions puts downward pressure on the pay and working conditions of all workers. Stephen Colbert, of all people, probably said it best in a statement to a congressional hearing. If your co-worker can't be exploited, then it is less likely that you will be exploited yourself. Okay, so you have seen the doom and gloom, human suffering and worst of all broken economic models that come out of the underground economy, but you are still keen to dive in and carve out your own little slice of that black market pie. Now you know how. Don't go for the obvious stuff. These markets are overcrowded, over-targeted by authorities, and filled to the brim with nasty gangsters. Instead, go and find some market-altering piece of government bureaucracy and work on it instead. You will be rewarded for facilitating a free market where supply meets demand, taxes are an afterthought, and you don't even need to get your hands dirty dealing with stuff that grandma would disapprove of. The market for the hearts and minds of politicians is a good one, 
a little bit of money invested here is likely to net you significant returns in the form of lucrative government contracts or accommodating regulations. However you do it, you are going to want to know how to launder that money. And once again, Economics Explained has you covered. So go watch our video on money laundering in the modern day. The black market, the shadow economy, or the financial underground, whatever you want to call it, the collective transactions that fall outside the letter of the law are as important as they are diverse. A lot of regular people, and economists for that matter, will fall into the assumption that the black market is just some fringe reality filled with Heisenbergs. Just as many will fall for the assumption that it's not an important factor to consider when looking at the economic impacts of, well, anything. The black market by its very nature is a non-exact science, but by accepting its size and influence we can better steer our legitimate economies, tailor market altering policies, and if nothing else, pocket a bit of cash off those pesky market failures. Hi guys, thanks for watching our latest video. If you enjoyed this video please consider liking and subscribing. We might be able to explore these slightly more um spicy topics if it weren't for our patrons over on Patreon. So if you want to see more videos like this one, please consider supporting our channel like these awesome people did. Thanks guys, bye. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for the New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, US versus China where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.